2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 40 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, November the 1st. First, I'll be talking to Rod Horan, the Managing Director of Joseph Palmer & Sons, talking about all the financial issues facing the ageing population, how to manage the costs of getting the right care for an aged parent, and how senior citizens should handle their retirement income when interest rates are falling. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about restoring trust in areas like auditing and law. But first, let's talk to Rod Horan. Rod Horan, the big issue now with an ageing society is whether people stay at home or go into an aged care facility, and that has a whole lot of cost issues for families. What's your view as an aged care specialist?
4: Leon, you are correct. Uh, The last five people to enter a particular aged care facility that we do uh, some work with uh, were all over age 95, so there is no doubt people are staying at home longer and entering aged care later. But it's a complex decision to make. There's no doubt about it. An elderly person, towards the end of their days, would, uh, if you asked any of them, I imagine nearly 100% of them would say that they would prefer to stay at home in their own environment, their own area of comfort as compared to going in to an aged care facility but there are differences that should be understood and one of the most important decision or is affordability and cost of course and the cost of keeping someone at home looking after a loved one 24 uh, 7 could be easily in the area of four to five thousand dollars a week which is 200 to 250 thousand dollars per annum so and that, is,
2: that's money you're paying cash isn't
4: it look many of these carers do demand <laughs> cash they, uh, they might have two or three jobs going and there's a shortage of finding carers so you often don't have any choice but to, uh, if you want someone for your loved one, you need to pay them what they're asked. So it is, you know, it's after-tax dollars and it is a large sum. Now if you compare that to an aged care facility, you can be in an aged care, a very good facility for a daily care fee of $50 a day which is about $250 a week or about 1000 1200 a a month, oh, 1500 a month it works out to, by 30 days, but uh, it is far, far cheaper.
2: What are the big questions people ask you, besides cost?
4: Uh, well, people usually come to us if they're going down the pathway that their parents need care, and they may have been through, before they've got to us, the uh, retaining mum or dad at home, and they would have gone through the difficulties of finding suitable carers, that's not easy. Uh, especially if you're doing it over a week 24-7. There's usually two or three or four you'd have over a week that are doing on, on the payroll for you. Their parents could be lonely. There's enormous strain and stress on a family member usually to manage it if their parents are at home. And, and of course, there's no medical facilities or staff available on call often if they're at home. So they'll come to us after maybe going through and trialling a home care stay for their parents, and then they'll come to us with a different set of complexities and questions and predominantly they'll, they'll be looking for a suitable home usually in an area close to whereby children can visit them and then they'll have the questions of how are we going to forward the bond which is now called a RAD, do we need to see, sell the family home and a whole range of other issues.
2: And so what advice do you usually give them on this? Look
4: first and foremost we we like to get an understanding of where they'd like mum or dad to be location-wise because aged care facilities vary in price according to the property values of a suburb. It may cost the same for an aged care facility to build in Cranbourne as it does in South Yarra or in Bentley or in Watsonia, but the cost of the acquisition of land is the big differentiation. So a bond, or now is called a RAD, could be up to a million dollars and then there could be a monthly total of, of an invoice could be eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars a month. So they want to know how they can fund it. So, what we do, having uh, the benefit of an Australian financial license, we can financially model their, the, the financial affairs of the uh, aged care resident and to see uh, how it could be best funded. Now, you know, we'll look at questions like can we fund it? without selling the family home? Can we fund it some other way? Can we pay the bond via different means? Now, the bond, as I said, called a RAD, can be paid one of three ways. It can either be paid the full amount up front, it can be paid part up front and an interest component for the balance, which is set under the Aged Care Act at 5.74%. So what we do is give families clarity and information so that they can... Uh, work through with us and work out how they can actually fund mum and dad getting in there and how they can fund the monthly invoices for mum and dad staying in there.
2: Now one of the issues of course with an ageing population is uh, a lot of them are dependent on interest, on their investment and we have falling interest rates. How does that leave them?
4: There's no doubt about it. Um, usually there are winners and losers from in, any uh, any situation, and uh, where we're currently in the interest rate cycle, if you're a depositor, you're certainly not getting a very good return on your money. If you're a borrower, maybe you are able to borrow at a more affordable rate than you could in the past. But if you're a retiree and you're heading down that path and you you need uh, certainly income as your main priority rather than capital growth, no doubt about it, a falling interest rate environment means that uh, you are just not deriving the same level of income that you may have received in the past. So that is having enormous ripple effect. At the same time, we are seeing, um, and it concerns me because history does repeat itself, and it isn't that many years ago that we've seen mortgage funds collapse in a large way, leaving many, many uh, investors losing up to their life savings. So we've got a number of more private mortgage funds that are springing up at the moment, offering very high yields. We're talking here seven
2: or eight percent, aren't we?
4: We are, which is way, way above the bank yield, the bank rates, and the bank bill rates, and what what uh, the big four banks are paying on deposits. So, what potential investors are not seeing and understanding are some very, very key and important and um, simple issues as to why someone could be offering a high interest rate of return and not realising that it naturally and always has and always will come with a high level of risk, risk reward and usually mortgage funds are offering this high rate of return it's because borrowers are prepared to pay it and the reason borrowers are prepared to pay it is because they are not being able to source it from traditional finances namely the big four banks And that automatically should sound some alarm bells. But we're seeing and we're fielding calls on a daily basis seeking our opinion about some particular mortgage fund or product that is offering a high rate of return and we're couching um, our callers to please consider where there's a high return, there is certainly a high risk.
2: Now, the people who are approaching you, though, are actually smart people. They're not stupid. They work in business. They're aware of the risks. Why are they approaching
4: these funds like Yeah, uh, Leon, it's an excellent question. People's memories are short. Uh, they may not remember some of the disasters that, uh, that occurred not that long ago and they're, they're feeling desperate and they're not enjoying eating into their capital to supplement their income and they are just not stopping sensibly. I agree with you, often very smart people, very commercially smart people are calling us for an opinion on a particular mortgage product at the moment. And human nature is human nature and a great ingredient of human nature is greed. So uh, th- that's probably the, the, the deepest explanation I can give you to your uh, very clear question.
2: So people are not prepared to live on one percent; one, one percent, they want more?
4: Well, the simple mathematical equation, and you get to a certain stage where if you can't see things in simple terms, there, there is a problem. If someone needs, for example, 100,000 a year to live off, take that as a round number, and when interest rates were 5%, they could do that on a capital pool of $2 million. When interest rates hard, the capital needs to be $4 million. If they still need 1%, equating to 100,000 a year, at, at 1%, they need a capital pool of $10 million, and most people haven't got that. So they are, they are certainly struggling, and as I said earlier, uh, it's causing them to dip into capital. And uh, no one knows when that last day, where they take their last breath is going to be. So anxiety is stepping in. And the other thing that we are finding is, we're living longer, and we're finding people are retiring earlier. And if you're retiring in your early 60s, and you're living another 25 years, and you aren't particularly well healed with a substantial sum of capital behind you, I think the inevitable fact is people will be running out of money, being forced to live on a pension with an ageing population. No government, no matter which side of the fence the government sits, will be able to fund a growing percentage of the Australian population based on the uh, on, on the ageing rate that we're currently experiencing.
2: Which means people will need very sound financial advice as they get older.
4: Yes, and you'd have to say, again, coming back to very simple principles, that sound financial advice is start planning at a much younger age than most people have in the past. It's difficult to uh, conjure up, and the rate you need to save, the longer you take to start saving, uh, some of these exercises that you could sit down with and work out through clients will almost be impossible to implement. If you've left it too late.
2: So what age should you start planning? As
4: soon as you enter the workforce. But it's not easy to do that. We need to take on a mortgage. And you might get married and you have private school fees. I know I'm saying it. It's certainly easier to be said than to achieve. But uh, we might have to thank Mr Paul Keating for this. When he brought in compulsory superannuation many years ago, it's now at 9.5%. Uh, And there was a reason for it. It's it's it's, it's, uh, envisaged that it may well be going up to 12.5% in the years to come, but there is no doubt about it. Superannuation, particularly in a period of civilisation where we're all living longer and retiring earlier, is becoming more and more important.
2: Rod Horan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grin. Uh Nicholas Grin, uh you're drawing some, from, some insights from John Kenneth Galbraith about the economy in the 1950s and applying it to the information economy. Tell us about that.
5: So uh, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a famous book called The Affluent Society in the uh, late 1950s. And what he said was that American capitalism of the time made a big deal of private affluence, uh, wanted, every, wanted everyone to have a car and have a house and have a dishwasher and have a vacuum cleaner. uh, But that at the same time, it regarded government as a sort of an unfortunate expense. And as he put it, we, we believe in, we believe in everyone having their own cars, but we think of street sweeping as an unfortunate expense. And therefore we have, we, we think of vacuum cleaners as a, fine thing for the economy that we have clean houses and filthy streets that he basically was arguing for a rebalancing between public and private expenditure and as he argued there was private affluence and public squalor now as i've been thinking about the information economy it strikes me that there are if you like public goods of information and we tend to ignore them so when when economists think about say Law and lawyers, they're very quick to say we should make lawyers compete more. I'm in favour of that because lawyers have rigged the market and they control entry to their own profession. And so they are a cartel in many senses. But there's something that has been that is missing, which is that the whole way law is set up, the way to, if you consider legal procedure, it's dominated in English speaking countries by the advocates, by the lawyers themselves, not by the judge. And of course, the lawyers themselves can find any number of ways to nitpick with each other and legal costs go through the roof. Delays go through the roof and so on. Now, uh, in civil law countries where a court case is thought of as essentially a search for the truth by an independent judge, and, and people get lawyers and the lawyers represent them, but, the, but the, the whole way in which the court case proceeds is that the judge is trying to get after the truth, not arbitrate a competition between the lawyers. That's immensely fairer, immensely more efficient. And so those, that's a nice way, I think, of illustrating that there are public goods of legal expertise, which are the way in which the whole game is set up, which tend to not be given a lot of attention by policymakers, and yet often they're actually more important than the degree of competition in in the profession. Not, though I'm saying we should ignore competition.
2: But at the same time, I mean, the same goes for firms spending trillions every year selecting their own auditors.
5: Exactly. So we have a whole range of disciplines, a whole range of professional practices where there is a great deal of skill. Accountancy is one, Auditing is another, you know, tax and finance uh, are others again. Auditing is the best example. The whole point about auditing is that auditing is there to provide a public good. The auditing is there so that someone can look from outside a company, look at the accounts of the company and get a reflection of reality. So we need auditors. Auditors have a lot of skill. And then we do something incredible which which is very similar to what we do in the legal system we say that we will get firms to appoint their own auditors now what do you think happens then of course auditors don't just make stuff up any old way there is a discipline, there is a profession of auditing, and the and the people in um, let's let's call it uh, Anderson's, <laughs> a now defunct auditing company, Anderson Consulting, I think it was called, are uh, trained auditors and they do their best to comply with the standards of auditing, but of course they're trying to do the very best by the firms that are hiring them. And that's obviously inefficient. It's, it's obvious, it's inefficient in exactly the same way that the legal system is inefficient. And that is because it hasn't properly conceptualized what the public goods of the profession are. And I liken this to, if we think of the same, the analogy in football, you and I, Leon, are both uh, citizens of Melbourne. And, uh, the, the the great code of AFL is nothing if not constant. If if the AFL commissioners aren't constantly going through the rules of the game, and trying to work out how they can be made a little bit better, so that the spectacle that the game produces is a little bit more pleasing to the eye of the supporters and maybe the heart of the supporters. And so they are, they understand that competition's important, but in many ways, competition is the easy part. Players will naturally compete with the players of other clubs. Clubs will naturally compete with each other. But getting those public goods of the code of AFL right is the thing that matters most, uh, with the competition part often looking after itself. And I think that. I, that's a real insight that I've convinced myself that I've arrived at over the last, uh, you know, over the last year or so, and I think it's a, a quite a powerful way to look at the whole world of of information, the economics of information, the governance of information. That we should ask ourselves, what are the rules of the game, and then how competitively is the game played?
2: Well, with this uh, insider trading, if you like, of uh, with law and audit what does that do for the ethics in society and what does it do for trust so, so what happens is that
5: an auditor is sitting there an auditor will have gone to uni and done accounting and auditing and like most young people they'll want to do the right thing they want to look after themselves and they want to do the right thing and then as they practice the profession they realize that being a really successful auditor involves the effort doesn't so much go into making absolutely sure that the accounts reflect reality. The effort goes into taking the existing accounting and auditing standards, take, taking the letter of those standards and stretching the envelope. And so the the art of being a really top-notch auditor and getting paid a lot of money is the skill of knowing how to bend but not break the rules. You know, that's what Robert Richter was doing or trying to do when he was defending George Pell. He wasn't concerned with the question of whether George Pell was guilty or innocent. His job was to assume he was innocent. That's fair enough. He's he's George Pell's advocate. And then he would simply proceed to do everything he could using the rules of procedure to try and get his way for his client now that's a role in a system but it it's not a role in a system in which you're really trying to serve the community directly and i think that has that that takes a huge toll on the ethics of these professions many uh, the, the way these professions grew up in the 19th century They were all, it's quite noticeable that they were very, very resistant to corporate entities. So these professions are typically built through partnerships, often initially unlimited liability partnerships. What's that telling you? It's telling you that people's ethics are fundamental to doing this job well. And as the 20th century has rolled on into the 21st century, those two things are being unpicked and the real money and effort and resources goes into stretching the envelope. And stretching the envelope doesn't make you feel particularly good and is at the cost of the the the, the whole ethical tone of the system.
2: Well this is something that we should all have a good think about and what would you be your solutions for it?
5: Ah, uh, well uh very simply what we can say with auditing that auditors should not be chosen by the firms that they audit. There are endless examples of this in government. So if you look at something like a regulatory impact statement, which is supposedly designed to... Prevent over regulation in government. The agencies that do the regulation impact statements are the agencies that are trying to get the regulation through on behalf of their minister. So, uh, likewise, environmental impact statements and so on. So, we, we have actually bred a society. This is kind of going off the our whole approach to journalism, news, and so on, is simply to allow people to make claims usually self-interested claims not claims that have any real you know we the, the viewers know that they're not looking at people who actually are trying to work out the truth they know that they're looking at advocates so we've we've found ourselves in this world of advocacy and and the, the ultimate destination is fake news and we need to try to find ways to reassert the need of the system to have a strong center which is seeking to find the truth, and people can advocate on either side of that. Uh, We shouldn't be imagining that self-interested people should be representing the truth in our system.
2: Well, Nicholas Gruen, that is certainly something to think about, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, in order to halt climate change, some US $50 trillion, or $73 trillion Aussie, of investment will be required to decarbonise the economy. That's according to the latest analysis by investment bank Morgan Stanley, which found five key areas will be required. Renewable energy, electric vehicles or EVs, clean hydrogen, biofuels, and carbon capture and storage or CCS. Unsurprisingly, it's renewable energy that Morgan Stanley recognises as their cornerstone of decarbonisation. In order to do so, Some US $14 trillion will have to be invested by 2050, according to those same calculations, presenting a huge opportunity for those green energy companies that help power the world. And it's official. Hong Kong has fallen into recession and is unlikely to achieve any growth this year following almost five months of anti-government protests, the city's financial secretary says. Preliminary estimates for third quarter GDP shows the city is officially in recession. The blow from the protest to our economy is comprehensive, Paul Chan said in a blog post, adding that a preliminary estimate for third quarter GDP on Thursday would show two successive quarters of contraction, the technical definition of a recession. He also said it would be extremely difficult to achieve the government's pre-protest forecast of 0.1% annual economic growth. Hong Kong's tourist numbers plunged 50% in October. And in Australia... Third quarter, consumer price inflation met economist expectations at 0.5% for the quarter and 1.7% on an annual basis. Second quarter CPI was 0.6% quarter on quarter and 1.6% on an annual basis. And voters are more inclined to argue the Morrison government should stimulate the economy to avoid a downturn than preserve the long-promised budget surplus at all costs, according to the latest Guardian Essential poll. The latest survey of 1,033 respondents suggests that more than half the sample, 56%, would prioritise stimulating the Australian economy and delaying the surplus to help prevent a downturn over pushing the budget back into black at all costs. That's at 33%. 12% were unsure. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has effectively ruled out the possibility of cutting its official interest rates below zero and urge business to take advantage of the already historically low borrowing costs. Dr Lowe says previously unviable big investments were now making economic sense at current historically low interest rates. It is extraordinarily unlikely that we will see negative interest rates in Australia, Dr Lowe said in a prepared speech in Canberra. In a question and answer session later, Dr Lowe expanded on his distaste for negative rates arguing they were having a pernicious effect on the functioning of the financial system and the pension system in Europe. The markets odds-on of another rate cut next week have eased significantly. And the August CoreLogic Hedonic Home Value Index results show the national housing market moving out of its correction, led by Sydney and Melbourne. The National Index for Home Values had fallen for almost two years before house values began to rise around the September quarter. National house values were on track to fall by 7% in 2019, before rising by 5.4% in 2020. Apartment values are forecast to fall by 3.8% in 2019, before rising by 5.1% in 2020. The housing market improvement has been driven by some easing of credit standards along the Reserve Bank of Australia reducing the cash rate. The RBA has reduced the cash rate by 75 basis points so far this year to 0.75% and a further 25 basis point reduction is expected for early 2020. And an Australian government program aimed at helping first-time home buyers cuts off support at little more than half the value of an average property in Sydney, where the real estate market has been booming. The first home loan deposit scheme will guarantee eligible buyers purchasing a property with a deposit of as little as 5%. The program's price cap for homes in Sydney is $700,000, according to details announced by the Treasury on Sunday. That contrasts with a median property value of $1.2 million for the city, where a typical house costs $1.4 million, according to CoreLogic, a real estate data provider. The purchase price thresholds under the new government program for the outer major cities are lower than Sydney. And the Australian Competition Consumer Commission will face off in a world-first court battle against one of the world's most powerful companies, accusing Google of misleading Android users about how to stop it tracking and using their location data. This was because Android users had to switch off both their location history setting and a second setting called web and app activity to block Google from collecting location data. ACCC Chair Rod Sims said everyone with an Android device had been misled by Google. And this was the first time in any jurisdiction that a regulator had launched a case like this against it. And Netflix Australia paid only $341,793 in tax for the 2018 calendar year, despite reaping an estimated $600 million to $1 billion from local subscribers. That's a 0.06% tax rate. While the US-based streaming giant nearly doubled the amount of income tax it pays in Australia from $175,516 in 2017, it continues to use a corporate structure which allows a Netherlands-based subsidiary to recognise the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue earned here. Its tax bill for 2018 amounts to a 0.0.6% of the lowest estimates of its Australian income or 0.04% at the upper end. In Australia, Netflix customers are not billed by the local incorporated company. They are still billed by Netflix International BV, a private company based in Amsterdam, Netherlands, which is a subsidiary of a US-listed Netflix Inc. And falling interest rates, weak loan growth, and hefty compensation costs are expected to dent the annual profits of ANZ Bank, Westpac, and National Australia Bank, with the Big Four's combined earnings forecast to fall to about $27 billion. With three of them, the four major banks set to unveil full-year earnings over the next fortnight, analysts predict weaker revenue growth and the impact of compensation payouts will take the Big Four's combined profits for 2019 to about $27 billion. from That's down from $29.5 billion last year. The market is bracing for messy results due to divestments and already announced provisions for customer refunds. Another focal point for investors will be whether profit margins are being crunched by the decline in lending rates. And scrap metal group Sims Metal Management has warned that it could slide to a loss of $30 million in the first half because of a collapse in ferrous scrap prices and a build-up of inventory in the United Kingdom. Sims Chief Executive Alistair Field said margins and volumes were meaningfully lower across all of the metals recycling operating regions because of a global slowdown in car sales, manufacturing and the fallout from the trade wars. And a phosphate mining company has scooped up a $20 million facility management's contract at the Christmas Island Detention Centre for the next three years. And the news comes after revelations in Senate estimates that the controversial and near-empty Christmas Island facility has cost almost $27 million since it was reopened this year. CI Resources Limited is an ASX-listed company with mining and agricultural interests on Christmas Island a remote Australian territory in the Indian Ocean. And the drought has hit two companies. First, fruit and vegetable giant Costa Group has been forced to raise $176 million for investments to pay down debt as it battles drought, high water prices and smaller harvests from its key horticulture crops. The company, Australia's biggest grower and marketer of fresh fruit and vegetables, also released its fourth profit warning for the year, forecasting a 2019 calendar year net profit of $28 million. In a statement to the ASX shortly after 5pm on Monday, Costa said previously foreshadowed challenges facing the company have continued to crystallise. These include the ongoing extreme dry conditions which were now affecting the size and yield of the key crops for the company, avocados, blueberries and the late-season citrus crop. And Bigger Cheese has warned that drought and weaker demand for export products will eat into its profits even more than first thought over the next 12 months. Bega said it had been hit by unprecedented competition for milk supply and weaker demand from third-party branded businesses. bigger cheeses warned that earnings could be as much as 17.4% weaker in 2019-20, saying market conditions were tightening. The company blamed unprecedented milk supply conditions and easing demand from third-party branded businesses for the weaker forecast. The company said it expected earnings before interest tax and depreciation amortisation to be in the range of $95 million to $105 million in 2019, down from $115 million in 2018-19. The 2019 result was much weaker than the $123 million mark to the $130 million forecast by Beeger at the half-year mark, but in line with the downgrade issued in early August as the milk supply continued to dry up. The continuing effects of a drought has also further decreased the total Australian milk production, increasing milk competition and pushing prices higher across the industry. And there's a new force working quietly behind the scenes in Australian politics, linked to big money and headed by the scion of one of Australia's wealthiest families. The Climate 200 Group backed 12 candidates in the May election, donating a total of $305,000. When the Australian Electoral Commission releases figures on political donations this week, it will show sizeable contributions from a little-known group called Climate 200. It's an initiative by Simon Holmes-Accord, son of Australia's first billionaire, and backed by Mike Cannon-Brooks, tech entrepreneur and billionaire co-founder of Atlassian. Climate 200 is avowedly clean and green, and will support any MP who champions strong action on climate change. In the lead-up to the 2019 federal election, Climate 200 raised a tidy sum, nearly half a million dollars. Most of the money went to independent candidates and crossbench candidates who support strong policy action to limit global warming and promote a transition to clean energy. It's part of a conscious effort to try and counter the influence of a fossil fuel lobby. And Victoria is primed for a new gold rush as the state government throws open 1,500 square kilometres of land for international companies to probe for the precious metal. Authorities estimate there's still $150 billion worth of gold in the ground, with only half the gold across Victoria thought to have been discovered. The new area for exploration lies to the east and northeast of Bendigo. The broader Bendigo region is estimated to hold 32 million ounces of gold, according to the Geological Survey of Victoria. Authorities believe the geology of the land is similar to Fosterville, near Bendigo, which has a gold deposit of about 9 million ounces. The Fosterville gold mine produced about 350,000 ounces last year, but is expected to yield about 600,000 ounces this year, as gold mining gathers pace again in Victoria. Extremely high-grade gold discoveries deep underground in 2015 have turned Fosterville into Australia's most lucrative pure-play gold mine, with rivals like Newcrest Cadia Mine only being more lucrative because of their copper by products. The gold price is currently higher than $2,100 per ounce. Gold mining could prove a handy income stream for the state government after introducing a new 2.75% gold royalty, despite angry protests from mining companies. And coal same-store supermarket sales rose at the slowest pace in 12 years, as the retailers struggled to match the boost it enjoyed from handing out miniature plastic toys and free plastic bags a year ago. Same-store supermarket sales for the three months ending September rose just 0.1% after rising 2.2% in the June quarter and by 5.1% in the September quarter last year, boosted by little shop promotion and the retailers' decision to hand out free single-use plastic bags. The result was the weakest in about 48 quarters, but nevertheless beat analysts' forecasts for a fall of between 0.9% and 1.5% and was helped by higher prices. By way of contrast, Woolworths' same-store Australian supermarket sales grew at a record 6.6% in the September quarter, as shoppers flocked to stores for free Lion King ushies and plant seedlings. Woolworths also enjoyed less of a bump from rising food prices, with prices rising 0.3% after falling 1% in the year-ago period, while Coles' food prices rose 1.4%. At the same time, Woolworths disclosed it will repay at least 5,700 salaried staff between $200 million and $300 million after a review found they had been underpaid under the General Retail Industry Award for several years. Woolworths chief executive Brad Banducci revealed the massive underpayments and apologised unreservedly, saying the retailer had let staff down. The underpayments affected about 5,000 salaried staff, including store managers and category managers in Woolworths supermarkets and metro stores. And a Melbourne man who laundered $4.6 million through a bogus meat exporting business and whose deposits form part of Ostrak's money laundering case against Commonwealth Bank of Australia faces deportation after serving jail time. Kit Tang, 42, ordered staff at export business CCMB International to carry bags of cash as much as $530,000 at a time down the street to a CBA branch in Springvale in 2015. He then funnelled the money back to his bosses in Hong Kong. CCMB's deposits at the Springvale Bank branch formed part of a larger court case in which financial intelligence regulatory agency Ostrack alleged the CBA had breached anti-money laundering laws 53,700 times. The case settled for $700 million in June last year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Michael O'Hernissian, the CEO of Premium, a leading provider of scalable managed accounts technology, portfolio administration and financial planning tools for the wealth management industry. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel about whether Australia is headed for another debt-fuelled property boom. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiZZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next
0: week.